Presses Play. Hey everyone, and welcome to Girl Presses Play, the movie podcast where we talk about films, what we think about them, and what makes them so damn great. I'm your host, Alana Rafferty. Get comfy, grab some popcorn, and get ready, because we're about to press play. And now for our feature presentation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. I hope you all are enjoying the onset of sweater weather here in the U.S. And, of course, I hope you and your loved ones are all happy and healthy and watching all of the movies all the time. So for today's episode, I am ready to throw some punches, I am ready to wave my fist, and I am ready to hold some handmade protest signs up in the air. And let me tell you why. Because today... We are revisiting one of the most hotly debated films of the early 2000s, 1997's Open Your Eyes, and its 2001 U.S. remake, Vanilla Sky. The original film was written and directed by Alejandro Menabar, probably most famous to U.S. audiences for writing and directing that Nicole Kidman thriller, The Others, and it received great reviews when it came out, and it very much announced Amenabar as one of the -the on-the-rise directors to watch. And rightfully so. He's a wonderful filmmaker and is very talented. But when Vanilla Sky came out a few years later, it was met with a D- from CinemaScore and was also met with tepid to awful reviews from most major film critics, save for one or two such as Roger Ebert. But now what's very interesting is that since Vanilla Sky's opening scene of a completely empty Times Square kind of brought it back into public consciousness recently due to its very eerie resemblance to a start-of-the-pandemic New York City, there are some folks in the film criticism community that are revisiting the film with a different perspective and some fresher eyes. So I thought it would be interesting to not only revisit these films, but to see how these two relate to each other, but also how they're very different films. And when looking at these films together, one word really sticks out in my mind. Expectations. Because both of these films had very different sets of expectations when they were released in theaters. So Open Your Eyes was Emin Abar's second feature, and Crow had already established himself as a critical and box office darling with a bunch of films like Almost Famous and Say Anything and Jerry Maguire. But is that the only reason these two films are critiqued so differently? We'll answer that question and probably raise a few more when we take a look at 1997's Open Your Eyes and 2001's Vanilla Sky. For those of you who haven't seen either film, I'm about to go over the plot in pretty specific detail, so if you don't want it spoiled, I'd skip about two minutes ahead just to be safe. 
The film begins with Cesar, who is leading a pretty inarguably charmed life. He's handsome and he's rich and he doesn't need to work for any of the money he has. And on top of all that, he can pretty much have any woman he wants. That all changes when a jealous ex-lover drives the two of them off of the road, causing Cesar to become pretty horrifically disfigured. As he tries to deal with his new life, these really strange things start happening and reality starts shifting around him. The main shift being that Sophia, his true love, is erratically replaced by Nuria, the ex that drove him off the cliff and keeps insisting that she's Sophia. In a fit of anxiety and rage, he kills Nuria only to pull the pillow over her face away to reveal that he in fact killed Sophia. By the end of the movie, we find out why all of this breaking of reality and character shifting has been happening. Cesar, unable to deal with his new life, signed up to be cryogenically frozen and woken up when the technology to reconstruct his face was available. And while frozen, he's been suspended in a dream state, but that dream state turned nightmarish due to his repressed feelings. And at the end, he chooses to end the dream and start life fresh, freeing himself of the memories of a life that didn't happen. I usually don't go into that much detail about the film's plot on this show, but I thought it was important to set the groundwork for this discussion since there's a lot of ground to cover in regards to how these two filmmakers dealt with the movie's plot points very differently. With this version of the film, it deals with the plot in a very like straightforward, no frills way. This is probably due to the fact that the director was coming off of his first feature, which was made for under 1 million USD right after he graduated film school. So like super scrappy, super low budget, super gritty. And the budget for Ojos wasn't that much higher, actually. It's about 2 million US dollars when it was made. So Amanabar probably went with the cost-free filmmaking techniques like framing and composition and things like that that he had at the ready and knew what to do with really well. He and his DP Hans Berman use a lot of like circular moving shots and color choices to indicate when reality and dream life are starting to blur together. And there's also a lot of, it's interesting, there's also a lot of like fast-tracking shots and action-filmed frames and if you couple that with the very tense and dark soundtrack that Amen Abar composed himself, it really starts to feel more like an action-packed psychological thriller. And everything Amen Abar is doing is really forcing you into the perspective of the character in order to relate to this young, handsome, rich man that wouldn't seemingly have anything to worry about, but his life is crumbling around him. The film also feels more focused on the destination rather than the journey, which is interesting, but really not a bad thing, because it serves the pace of the film and the main character's just relentless pursuit of figuring out what's going on very well. So when this film came out, it received a lot of accolades, all the good reviews. It was the second highest grossing film in Spain that year. And it was also nominated for a ton of Goya awards, which is the Spanish equivalent of the Oscars. It is suffice to say that a lot of people really, really like this film from this young, very up-and-coming, scrappy director that most people didn't know about. And I gotta tell you, I'm one of those people that really, really liked that film. The one thing I couldn't get over, don't ask me why, but there's a final scene where Cesar wants to see Sofia, which is Penelope Cruz's character, one more time. 
Poor Penelope Cruz looks absolutely freezing. <laughs> She's standing on the roof in this white dress and literally clinging her arms together. <laughs> I felt so bad for her. And in general, I liked what she did with her character, but I feel like they maybe leaned into the dream girl aspect of her character just a little too much. But again, that also is probably another choice that lent itself to the really forced into Cesar's perspective aspect of the film. Vamos. Hay algo más que debes contarme antes de empezar. Nada que usted ya no sepa. Que iba a cumplir 25 años y que me gustaba comer, dormir y hacer el amor, como a todo el mundo. Y ya sabe usted lo que hace todo el mundo cuando se levanta. Estás aquí porque has matado a una persona. So, the legend has it that Tom Cruise saw this film at Sundance, and by the time the credits were rolling, he was on the phone with his agent trying to get the rights to the remake of the film. And then once he got those rights, he brought on his Jerry Maguire director Cameron Crowe, who was quoted in The Guardian saying that he was excited by the very impressionistic elements of the script and was ready to tackle something very different than what he usually does. Well, there are some of the usual suspects in a Cameron Crowe film showing up here, most notably the like very adorable and chemistry-filled love story, the quippy dialogue between two best friends, and of course a great, if not overbearing at times, pop-filled soundtrack. This was very different than anything Crowe had really done before. This version of the film is much, much more omniscient than its predecessor, and the beginning aerial shots of New York City really, really set that tone. It is, as Crow says, impressionistic and was made with the intent of having this kind of choose-your-own-adventure element to it. Interestingly enough, in the film's DVD commentary, Crow says that there are five different ways you can interpret the film and its reality, as well as what it's trying to say about life with the various Easter eggs and references he left, as well as how he and editors Joe Hutching, apologies if I mispronounce that, and Mark Lavolsi assembled and paced the film. The score, which is honestly one of my favorite parts of this whole film and composed by Nancy Wilson, also has this very like dreamy, subconscious, kind of meditative quality to it. It's much more abstract in what it's trying to emotionally indicate than the Oho score. This, for better or for worse, means that we'll never fully be in the shoes of the main character, but we're going to be more emotionally impacted by witnessing and relating to his journey. I would also like to note for this movie, not only did Crow give Penelope Cruz more to do with her character, but they gave her a damn coat for the rooftop scene. <laughs> Just saying, moving on. Honestly, though, in some ways, the film was a success. With a $68 million budget, it did make over $200 million at the box office, so it wasn't a total bomb. But boy, this film was like panned, panned as the day is long. I read one article written by a film reviewer that said when he went to go see the film in theaters with his wife, he heard someone turn to their partner afterwards a couple of aisles ahead and say, well, this makes me never want to see a movie again. There's also a report that Cameron Crowe went to go see an opening weekend screening, and one of the theater ushers, I can't believe this, was walking up and down the aisle saying, hey, if you want your money back, now's your chance, because this is not the movie you think it is. 
And therein lies the problem, good sirs and madams. The expectations for this film were completely different from what everyone was expecting from the Jerry Maguire duo. Granted, this is a tough movie to market. As much as I love it, it's hard. The poster didn't really say anything about the film other than the fact that Tom Cruise was in it. And Crow was very, very reluctant during the press tour for this film to give Vanilla Sky like a very hard line genre during interviews. I think the open-endedness of the film and the marketing issues it ran into unfairly doomed the film. Is it me? I'll tell you later. No, no, tell me now. I'll tell you later. Something's wrong. Please tell me now. Everything. Let's tell it. Talk about it all right now. Let's just talk about everything. Let's get it all out. Say everything now. Let's just, just. David. Say everything, say everything now, 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 now. I'll tell you in another life when we are both cats. There is no way that any film ever made in the history of film will be completely devoid of any subjectivity from either the filmmaker or the audience person watching it. We all have very different specific life experiences, and we've also developed very individual and different perspectives because of that. That being said, I think there is a big difference between a film not being your speed or just not being a good film and a film being something it's not supposed to, because that's what the initial criticism of Vanilla Sky feels like. It feels like audiences and critics alike got upset that this wasn't essentially the sequel to Jerry Maguire because it had the same folks attached to it. And what's interesting is that the rhetoric that I found never really included anything along the lines of, oh, the original was better. It almost solely focused on everything the film wasn't. But if our expectations or preconceived ideas of a film are always met, what makes seeing a film an interesting, engaging experience? Don't get me wrong, it's not fun to see a film you don't like from a filmmaker you usually love. But... If filmmakers and all artists for that matter aren't encouraged to try something new or create something outside of their comfort zone, then we stop getting dynamic work influenced by a person's lived life. We just get pleasing images and sounds that don't really mean anything to us. To close this episode, I would like to leave you with the original director Alejandro Amenabar's thoughts on the remake of his film. Now that I have seen Vanilla Sky, I couldn't be more proud. Cameron has all my respect and admiration. Respect for having plumbed the deepest meaning of the work. Admiration for having sought new viewpoints and a fresh approach to the mise-en-scene, giving the film its own unmistakable touch. Vanilla Sky is as true to the original spirit as it is irreverent towards its form, and that makes it a courageous, innovative work. I think I can say that, for me, the projects are like two very special brothers. They have the same concerns, but their personalities are quite different. In other words, they sing the same song, but with quite different voices. One's like opera, and the other's like rock and roll. Thank you, as always, for listening. What did you think? Do you think these movies are fairly judged, or is Vanilla Sky perhaps the underrated gem of our times? Let us know what you think in the comments. We really, really want to hear from you guys. Tune in next week when we get a little gross and a lot 80s. Again, on this show, because <laughs> you know me, I love gross and I love 80s. Thanks again for listening. And as always, stay safe and keep watching movies. See you next time. 
special menu for your delight, oh my. Tonight you fly so high up in the vanilla sky. Your life is fine, it's sweet and sour, unbearable or great. You gotta love every hour, you must appreciate. This is your time, this is your day. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for new episodes and be sure to check us out on our Patreon page where you can support the show and get some really cool exclusive stuff for doing it. Special thanks to John F., Ferriolo Fencing, LLC, Marianne O'Dwyer, and Helen Rafferty. For news on upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Girl Presses Play. The show is written, produced, and hosted by Alana Rafferty. Intro music is composed by Asha Iwanowitz, and our logo design is by Mark Sauve. Thanks again. See you next time. Girl Presses Play.